1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jonathan Safran Foer, whose latest book is We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. He is the author of three novels, Here I Am, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Everything is Illuminated, and one earlier nonfiction work, Eating Animals. Have I left anything out there?
0: I've done a little, a couple of odd smaller books here and there. The first book I ever did was actually an anthology of writing about um, Joseph Cornell's bird boxes. I did a book called Tree of Codes, which was... Um, I started with Bruno Schultz's Street of Crocodiles and removed a bunch of words until what remained told a different story. I, of course edited New American Haggadah, which I'm sure you use every Passover and most nights in between.
1: This particular book, We Are the Weather, is in a way a sequel to eating animals, at least in my mind. Eating animals mostly dealt with factory farming, with I believe there was probably some reference to climate in there. But this book, we go full tilt on the effects of animal husbandry particularly factory farming on the climate and the weather, why it isn't just fossil fuels, why it is the way we eat. I talked to you about eating animals. After that, uh, now I only get cage-free chicken and cage-free eggs. But we're going one step further here, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to go back and let you talk a little bit about the relationship of climate and
0: eating meat? So I don't think of this as a sequel to Eating Animals. And I think of the echoes, which are obvious and totally undeniable. Both books take animal agriculture as their focus. I think of those echoes as unfortunate because it makes it harder to believe, maybe, the argument that I am trying to make, which is that with respect to climate change, our food choices are as at least as important as any other choices. They're not important in such a way that we should stop paying attention to the other things, but we have to include this among the things that we pay attention to. So according to the United Nations, which is not PETA, animal agriculture is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, locally and globally. Air pollution, water pollution, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, topsoil erosion. Um, they published a study called Livestock's Long Shadow, which is, if anybody who is listening to this cares to learn more, that's a great place to start. In the most recent IPCC report, the authors said that even if we were to do everything else that we're talking about to save the planet, we have no hope of meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Accords unless we also dramatically reduce the amount of meat that we eat. So we know that there are four things that an individual can do. That matter more than everything else and, in fact, far more than everything else. Those four are having fewer babies, controlling the population somehow, flying less, living car-free as opposed to just getting a hybrid, and eating a plant-based diet. Most people listening to this are probably not right at this moment in the process of choosing whether or not to have another kid. Otherwise, why would they be listening to this, right? 85% of Americans drive to work. And most of our cities were built to require cars. More than half of the flights that we take are either for work or for non-leisure personal purposes. So we have to do less of those things, but it's not simple. It's, not as e- it's certainly not as easy as saying, hey, start right now. Food is a little different because we have the ability to make a choice for almost all of us. It's an unconstrained choice, especially when taking into account the fact that it's cheaper to eat less meat and it's the only one of those four activities that immediately addresses methane and nitrous oxide, which are the two most powerful greenhouse gases. So just to take a step back, I find that when talking about this book, often people say to me, so what's your argument? Or, so you're trying to tell us that, and this book actually doesn't have an argument per se. It's sharing what is uncontroversial information.
1: A, a large segment of the book consists of a dialogue between you and yourself regarding what this all means and what we can do. And of course, for me, the big question, and it's a big question in the book, is if I forego, let's say, an egg tomorrow morning for breakfast and instead go out and buy tofu and cook that instead, how will that one egg make a difference? Even if I Take away the eggs completely from my
0: diet. Tofu is a bit of a straw man. It's unfortunate that people gave tofu as the alternative. There are a lot of other things you could eat instead of an egg. So nothing would change if you don't eat that egg. Just as nothing will change if you shoplift tomorrow, and nothing will change if you don't vote. You know, if we just look at our individual actions as citizens, out of the context of a the lives that we live, b the accumulation of our choices, and c how those choices participate in waves and social contagions, then yeah, none of them matter at all. And we should all be pretty reckless in our lives and go grab whatever you can hold in your hands and mouth. But we live in communities. And as our behaviors change collectively, which they do all the time, this is not like an unprecedented thing, we're now eating vastly more meat and animal products than we did 50 years ago. We've proven that we can change in that direction first of all, there are real-world implications. There are real-world effects. The less meat we eat, the less cattle will be raised, the less methane and nitrous oxide will be produced, and uh, the less quickly the earth will warm. But as importantly, and maybe even more importantly, when we exercise our choices, the culture and ultimately the government respond. So you you hear a lot of Well, why should the US do anything because China's not doing anything? And even more, I hear from friends, you know, why should I do anything when this is a systemic problem and only the government can fix it? The government isn't fixing it, and the government is not going to fix it, not anytime soon. And I don't just mean Trump. You know, Obama was not fixing it, and I find it radically hard to imagine any of the Democratic presidential candidates fixing it unless the culture changes to require it being fixed. Marches are a really powerful way to require change, top-down change, but it's not as powerful as changing our behaviors when those behaviors involve money. You know, I met a lot of farmers when I was running Eating Animals who said to me, I grow what people buy. It's not like I'm growing what I think people should eat. I'm growing what people buy, and corporations sell what people buy. A lot of people, probably both of the people having this conversation right now, um, have been alarmed looking at images of the Amazon burn And that alarm usually morphs into anger at Bolsonaro and maybe at Trump. 91% of the Amazon's deforestation is for animal agriculture, period, to, to create land for livestock to graze or to create land to grow crops for livestock to eat. If you could imagine a global boycott of beef, if you could just imagine American students boycotting beef, that would be the most effective way to save the Amazon. That's not going to happen. But there are already these really obvious arcs of behavioral change. You know, there are more vegetarians on American college campuses now than Catholics and more vegetarians than any major of study, like English, physics, economics. And that pushes things, I think. I think that is our most forceful way of pushing things between elections.
1: One of the reasons that I talk about eggs is because I happened to have been diagnosed with celiac when I was a little kid. So wheat is out of the question for me. And I want to keep my weight down, so I'm trying to limit the carbs. But the point is that the decisions we make do have, I think, change. And let me give you two examples. One is gluten-free. For me, it was... Holy cow, I can now go gluten-free without a problem. For a number of people, it's whatever's out there in the zeitgeist. It made a difference. Yeah. Uh, the second one is cage-free. We talked about cage-free. Yeah. And at that particular time, there was maybe one brand that you could find in a supermarket. And you go to Safeway, you couldn't find any cage-free chicken. Now, half of it is.
0: My mom lays cage-free eggs these days. Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere. But listen, you bring up a good point, which is not everybody can change in the same ways. So the suggestion of my book is let's try not to eat animal products for breakfast and lunch and then eat the dinner that you're going to eat. That's based on the most comprehensive analysis of the relationship between food and climate change where the authors studied food systems around the globe and argued that in order to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords, People who live in undernourished parts of the world can afford to eat a little bit more meat and dairy, but people who live in the UK, Europe, and the United States need to reduce their meat consumption by 90% and their dairy by 60%. Not everyone can do that. In fact, probably most people don't feel like they can do that right now, but that's what we wanna be aiming toward. So, you know, as I said, different kinds of change are, are difficult for different people. So I find it relatively easy to change my diet, Not effortless, but relatively easy. If you were to present me with the information about how bad my flying habits are, I would be really embarrassed. And I would tell you, I find that much more difficult to change. Some people in this country live in urban food deserts, and we cannot expect them to change at all because they have literally no choice or no options. And that's a problem that we need to work on and solve rather than point at and say, that's why I'm not going to change, even though I have all the ability in the world to change what I eat.
1: We changed for different reasons too. I used to drive into San Francisco all the time, and now I only take BART because I don't want to sit in traffic.
0: That changed me. Right. So a lot of people are eating less meat now simply for health. They don't really care about animal welfare, and they don't care about the environment. The argument against eating a lot of meat, I'm not talking about the argument for vegetarianism, but the argument to eat less meat is comprehensive. I mean, there is no argument for eating more meat. People who smoke are three times as likely to get cancer as people who don't smoke. People who eat a meat-based diet are four times as likely to get cancer as people who eat a plant-based diet. We know that it's better for our bodies. This is not controversial. We know that it's better for the environment. It's not controversial. We know it's better for animal welfare. It's not controversial. We also know it's better for farmers. You know, when I wrote Eating Animals, I can't remember when in the process of that publication you and I spoke, but one of the things that most surprised me was who the allies of the book were and, and who the critics were. I had anticipated that the allies would be like the animal rights community and that the critics would be farmers. And it was actually just the opposite, just the opposite. Farmers despise the factory farming industry, which, is, which produces 99.9% of the animals that we eat in America. We have fewer farmers in America right now. I don't mean as a percentage of the population, but a real number. Fewer farmers now than we had during the Civil War, even though the population has um, increased 11 times. The goal of factory farming is to remove farmers from the equation and to remove nature from the equation. They see they see a human presence and the model of nature as obstacles to be overcome. So there are a lot of reasons to change. You know, Somebody asked me the other day, don't you think it's a little cynical that companies are now starting to sell plant-based meats like Kentucky Fried Chicken or Burger King? I said who cares? Like who cares what their motivations are? In in the climate conversation we put the emphasis on feelings and intentions rather than accomplishments, and I'm a good example of this. Like I for years just said all the right things. Like I I know how you a pine at a dinner party. And I know the statistics to fire off and I can make really clever posters at the marches. And I did nothing. And my carbon footprint was way bigger than that of the average denier of climate science. you know. But I found some like soothing or complacency in knowing as if knowing mattered, as if agreeing with the science mattered. I felt that saying somebody has to do something was itself doing something. And this writing this book was a real reckoning in that way. Oh, well, you take, I guess, personal blame for having hamburgers. What I take personal blame for is my own hypocrisy. There's nothing exactly wrong with having hamburgers. I wouldn't say that somebody who eats hamburgers <laughs> is bad. I would say that somebody who eats hamburgers every day is not living in an environmentally conscious way and is probably killing himself as well. But the point isn't, to be perfectly consistent or to aim for some kind of ethical perfection that no one's going to attain, and that also isn't necessary. You know, To save the planet, we don't have to stop flying and stop driving and stop eating burgers. We just have to do a lot less of those things. We have to listen to the science. To what The science is pretty clear about how much less of those things we have to do.
1: I have a friend who's a meat eater or his mother's a vegan. His boyfriend is a vegetarian he eats less meat
0: because he's not around it as much. Mm. I mean, it just changes. Well, that's what's going to happen. That is the kind of systemic change that I hope for. You know, I don't think there's a future in which meat is illegal or people are shamed when they eat meat. I do think there's a world in which the default switches. So right now, you go to a cafeteria, you go to a restaurant and they, you know, here's what they're serving and then here's the veggie option. And what I hope for is a day in the very near future when here's what they're serving and here's the meat option. If you want to eat meat, that's fine, but make it easier for people to eat other things. Another really powerful way to make it easier would to have the price we pay for meat at the cash register reflect the actual price of meat, which is not what we're paying at the cash register because so many of the costs have been externalized. There's massive subsidies to animal agriculture, which we pay for. It's just we don't pay for it at the cash register. So it's an invisible cost to us and the environmental destruction, which they're not held accountable for.
1: Jonathan Safran Four, you talk a lot about Felix Frankfurter and a man named Karski in the book. Now, Karski came over from Europe and he got to the Supreme Court justice and he told him about the death camps or the concentration camps in like mid early 1940s. Frankfurter believed him but didn't
0: believe him. Yeah. So Karski was a young Catholic in the Polish underground who smuggled himself into the Warsaw Ghetto and smuggled himself into a death camp to gather testimonies and evidence. He smuggled himself out of Nazi-occupied Poland, made his way to England and ultimately America to enlighten the world and to get the world to act, to get the West to act. And he had a meeting, a famous meeting with Felix Frankfurter, who was a Supreme Court justice at the time and is considered sort of one of the smartest people America's ever produced, also a Jew, which is not unimportant in this story. So Karski laid out for Frankfurter what it is that he had seen. He showed him images. He read him testimonies. Frankfurter peppered him with questions like, well, what's the height of the wall that separates the Jews from the rest of the city? And then Frankfurter thought, walked around, sat in his chair and said, look, um, a man like me speaking to a man like you has to be frank. And I can't believe what you're telling me. And Karski's colleague who was in the room said, how can you say that? Look at all of this evidence. It's irrefutable. And why on earth would he lie? And um, Frankfurter said, well, I didn't say that he was lying. I said that I'm unable to believe him. My... Mind and my heart were built in such a way that I cannot believe him. And I think that's a predicament that a lot of us find ourselves in with climate change. You know, there we have this impression that about half the country doesn't believe in the science of climate change. And if we could just like shake some sense into their heads, we could get to work on this problem. It's not the case. 91% of Americans accept the science of climate change. 70% of Americans wish that the United States had remained in the Paris Climate Accords. That includes the majority of Republicans. This is not enlightened versus ignorant people. The real kind of denial that's a problem now is the kind that I have had and continue often to have, which is I know it's true that this is happening. I know the causes. I care about the fact that it's happening and yet I can't quite believe it in the sense of having my conscience shaken over time. You know. When I'm looking at images of the Amazon burning or when I'm, you know, watching a superstorm approach the coast or hearing stories about climate refugees or melting ice sheets, I'm really moved. I feel alarmed. I feel angry. I feel depressed. I feel motivated. And then the second that I'm not actively confronting those realities, I just stop caring. And I go back to my life. And I think, what would be a cool place to fly to for no reason at all, you know? Um... (laughs) So the form of denial that's most insidious right now is people who know and care but aren't acting. My reason for wanting to write this book was to look at my own disbelief that in that sense and to question what's possible, not only in terms of what can one do in the world but also just what is possible for me because there are a lot of things one can do and should do that are just impossible for us.
1: When you talk about this, I think about all of the people complaining about Trump who voted for Jill Stein because,
0: well, they just couldn't vote for Hillary. And yet the result was Donald Trump. Well, the result was Donald Trump. Donald Trump may be remembered as the most important environmentalist who ever lived. The environmental movement as it exists right now is so much stronger than it was two years ago. Um, His complete ignorance has forced a kind of wisdom on the rest of us his apathy is forced to kind of action he it's almost Marxist like he has made the situation so bad that it is finally intolerable you know I campaigned for Hillary and I wanted Hillary to be president I certainly voted for Hillary if Hillary had been president we would still be in the Paris climate accords and like every country in Europe and like all but two countries in the world we would not meet its goals uh, the problem is, we would probably feel complacent, you know, because the name of our country was on the line on the right document, and that would feel like enough. Dramatic, radical change is required, and it may be that a negative, a negative stimulus is, is the second best thing to a positive one.
1: Well, I keep thinking of that picture of Greta Thunberg staring at Donald Trump the other day and thinking she wouldn't be there staring at a Hillary Clinton.
0: That's exactly right.
1: Yeah. And, and her, her voice it, might not be as powerful.
0: That's right. And our situation wouldn't be very different. You know, without a doubt, Trump is dismantling extremely important regulations and setting us on a bad course. But relative to the scale of climate change, I don't know how different a Clinton administration would have been.
1: You bring up in We Are the Weather, you bring up the mobilization required for World War II, shutting out the lights, even in the Midwest, um, people sacrificing. Now, obviously, we're not at that point now. You also bring up tangentially how the wave starts at baseball games, and the two are related. The question is, is there a wave? Could there be a wave that at some point would create the environment for a World War II type situation.
0: It's happening right now. You I think? Mean, I absolutely do. It feels so palpable. You know, it's easy to get <laughs> to get used to the moment that you're living in. But two months ago, I think this felt completely different. Let's take just the issue of food, because it happens to be the subject of this book. When I started writing this book, I couldn't find an article connecting meat-eating with climate change in a mainstream publication. Now there's one every single day. Just in the last two days, there's one in the New York Times about how omnivores get vegetarian cooking wrong and here are some ways to get it right. It was written by one of their food journalists whose child became a vegetarian. There's a piece in the New Yorker about the uh, ascendancy of the Beyond Burger, an impossible burger, and what role they might play in battling climate change. There's an article in The Telegraph about a barrister who wants to label meat eating an an eco-crime, I think it was. It runs the gamut. There's a lot of stuff out there. Some of it is eye-opening, and some of it makes one chuckle. But the volume of coverage, is it's been increasing parabolically. The volume of energy... And not only among students, among, I don't know if you feel this way too, but my peers has been increasing parabolically. You know, if I had written this book a year or two ago, I suppose we'd probably be talking because we like each other and we've had good conversations in the past, but I doubt you would find it as interesting a subject or certainly not as topical a subject as it is right now. This is just, it is on people's minds and the challenge is to move it from our minds to our hands you know, to start doing something and acting and mobilizing. I hope and I think it's what we're on the verge of.
1: Well, one thing I noticed, I was at Safeway yesterday, and I noticed that the price of the Beyond Burger had risen from like six ninety nine dollars to $9.99. And the reason for that is that there was now a Safeway brand. The only reason they do that, and I would assume Costco will probably be doing something in the next year or two, is because people are buying them.
0: Yeah, it's it's very, very good business. I mean, Beyond had, I think, the most successful IPO in the last 15 years. But it's really interesting why they're being so successful. When I saw images, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken came out with a, I don't even know what the right nomenclature is, a veggie chicken in Atlanta. They're going to roll it out nationally. They started in Atlanta. And there was an article about it in the Times. And there were images of people around the block. So I didn't look at that and say, the future is now. I looked at it and I thought, that's a lot of vegetarians, you know, who are going to eat this thing. But what I found really inspiring, two things. One, KFC painted their restaurant green that day. So it wasn't just a concession to a, you know, small part of the population that they might be able to squeeze a few bucks out of. They were really proudly announcing this new product which and announcing the connection to the environment. And their public statement is the part that had me most excited, which was, We don't think of this as a food for vegetarians. We think of this as a food for people, for meat eaters who want to eat less meat. Um, Beyond burgers, 90% of people who buy Beyond Burgers in supermarkets also buy meat um, in the same period of time that they conducted that study. I, I don't know if you feel this way. I'd be curious to hear your experiences. But I know many, many more meat eaters than I know vegetarians. I don't actually know that many vegetarians. Every meat eater I know is interested in eating less meat. They're not interested in becoming vegetarians. So that is a huge change. We used to believe that we had these sort of binary options, you know, you're you're a vegetarian or you eat meat. That's it. Like you're one or the other. And people who were anywhere in between were hypocrites. Like, "Oh, what do you mean you believe that we should eat less, but you're still eating it?" And now, I think it's it's reorienting from an identity and and an identifier to a daily choice or three times a day choice. One in three Americans eats a meal every single day at a fast food restaurant. If all we did was replace fast food meat with plant-based meat, that'd be such a wonderful change in our culture. We'd have, people would be significantly healthier. Although, as is often pointed out, it's not as if we should be eating Beyond or Impossible burgers all the time either. We should be eating vegetables and grains and beans. But um a Beyond Burger requires 99% less water than a beef hamburger, 93% less land, and produces 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. So just from an environmental perspective, this is a this is like an obvious one, you know? Like we cannot make a steak. Nobody knows how to do that. A steak is a singular pleasure. A fast food burger, we have nearly perfected it already.
1: Just curious, did you do any research on the relationship of places like Burger King and McDonald's to deforestation down in the Amazon? Is there any specific link between those two?
0: You mean the companies themselves? Yeah. Or? I don't know about the companies themselves. So 91% of Amazon Amazonian deforestation is for animal agriculture. So whether McDonald's is a, a massive purchaser of beef. The U.S. hasn't been purchasing Brazilian beef for a couple of years because of safety There's some safety concerns. I think they're starting to do it again now. But if if deforestation is your thing, then meat reduction is your thing. Globally, it's 80% 80 of deforestation is for the purpose of animal agriculture.
1: Uh, the, The second half of the book, when we get past the dialogue between you and yourself or between Imitation Karski and Imitation Frankfurter is about your grandmother and her experiences and how that relates to your children and you. And, and it was very personal. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship of those events
0: to what you're trying to say in the book as a whole? So the first thing I should say is that it wasn't intentional. You know, It was not a literary device. This book, more than any book that I have written before really is just a record of my own thought process, which goes some way toward explaining why it's fragmented as it is, why it meanders as it does. I think it's a more meandering book than any other that I've written. I wrote the book in the year that my grandmother died, and I could have chosen to keep those, keep that event out of this book, but then it wouldn't have been an honest you know, reflection of my thought process because the way that I was thinking about climate change, the way that I was thinking about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a dad, what it means to be an earthling. We're so powerfully informed by her death and thinking about the lessons that she had taught me. My grandmother was born in Eastern Europe in a shtetl in what was then Poland and is now the Ukraine. And she fled a couple of weeks before the Nazis arrived. Um, She didn't know anything that the others didn't. No, Everybody knew that the Nazis were coming. Everybody. There was not, it was not a secret. It was not a surprise. My grandmother's not any braver than her sister or parents or grandparents or friends or aunts or uncles, all of whom were murdered. She wasn't less afraid of dying than they were. And when I would ask why she decided to leave, her only explanation was I felt I had to do something. And... I found that so perplexing. Why is it that some people feel they have to do something and others don't? Um, When she came to the States, she met my grandfather in a displaced persons camp in Europe where my mother was born. Then they came to the States. And about four years after they arrived, my grandfather killed himself. And so it was a sort of second way of thinking about survival, the choice for survival. Those stories were uh, stars that I navigated by as I was trying to find my way through what I find to be a really perplexing problem. Well,
1: you, you asked the question when she said, I need to do something. She didn't take her sister. She didn't stay behind and organize people. She left on her own. She did something, but was it enough? Was it the right thing?
0: So that comes up explicitly in this dialogue section that you alluded to where one of the voices s- says did she do enough the other voice says of course she did enough you know she was 20 years old that's just too much to expect of somebody and the first voice says yes i know i agree with you and the other voice says well then why did you ask and the first voice says because agreeing on what is unfair to ask of somebody helps to clarify just how much one we can ask of ourselves.
1: Well, I have to ask myself, is what I'm doing here, this interview, enough? Is it anything? I mean, it's also climate change week at KPFA. So I was, you know, it just happened to be when you're coming through town. So, you know, I'm going to edit it quickly, put it on the air very quickly, as opposed to waiting a few weeks. Is it enough? I mean, what what are any of us doing that's
0: enough? And that part well, scares I, me. I, I think enough is you honestly interrogate yourself. Like, what are my limits? What's possible for me? You know, we could do this as an exercise right now. It might be a little uncomfortable. But so you you eat meat, how often would you say? Probably every day. What do you think is your honest limit? Like, if you if you were to take what you know about the relationship between food and climate change, take what you know about yourself in terms of your how much you care, you know, which is nothing anybody else could tell you. What do you think your honest limits are? Not not what is effortless, not what's comfortable, but if I'm being honest, I think I could eat it only on weekends, or I could eat it only at dinner, or I could, you know, what do you, what do you think is your honest limit?
1: I would put it in a different way. I would say that I could eat it every day, but I, you know, if you put it in a vegetable or a salad or something like that for the protein, mm-hmm. then I can eat the same amount, you know, I could eat every day, but the amount that I eat could be cut way down lower. I could cook a chicken and have it last for two weeks. So how would you keep track of that? You mean to see if I did less? Yeah. Oh, it would be easy because there'd be less in my refrigerator. Would that
0: change then be when when you're buying it? Oh, I would buy less. So how much less? I'm not pushing this as a kind of mental exercise. Right, no. There's a huge difference between saying I could do less and codifying what you mean, like putting it into language and saying it in front of other people.
1: Well, I was thinking – I've been thinking about doing that too. Yeah. You know, instead of breaking a chicken down into four parts, I break it down into eight parts.
0: So do you think it's realistic for yourself to say, I know about climate change. I care about climate change. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy half as much meat.
1: Yes. I could do that.
0: Will you do that?
1: Very, very possibly. Yes. <laughs> to so the conversation. Okay, okay, yeah. So sure.
0: What, what is the thing that trips you up with the very, very possibly instead of just like I'll try uh,
1: mem- remembering to do it.
0: What makes it hard to remember? What would make it easier to remember? I yeah. mean, I, I doubt that memory is a problem when you're at the grocery store. We just had this conversation. You know, I d- I doubt that you'll forget forgetting that you care, forgetting that you want to
1: keeping it as that priority and making sure there's enough vegetables to make up the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I found after going to Thailand is that I love rice noodles. Mm. And I've been using more rice noodles, which means I've been eating less meat because of it. I'm moving
0: away from it because I like something better. You would love this article that was published in The Times. So today is the 24th of September. It was published on the 23rd of September. And it's one of their food critics. I mentioned it before writing about cooking for a vegetarian child and the mistakes that we often make when we try to eat less meat and the ways that it can really diversify a diet and make it more pleasurable but there are some differences like it may not be you may be used to having one big dinner and you're just like full you know you've said a couple times about getting enough protein and it may be that a different way of eating is to have a dinner and then expect to have like a little something else a couple hours later We've gotten fixed into these modes of what a meal should look like, when a meal should happen. A lot of the modes are sad. Like, one in five meals in America is eaten in a car, and we've come to think that that's okay. Do you have a, a good Thai cooking book?
1: Uh, it's called online. I could find stuff. Yeah. It's called online
0: because <laughs> I think sometimes, like, we set ourselves an unfair challenge, like to just say I'm gonna flip a switch and stop eating these things I've always eaten and always shopped for and prepared. And it's just going to be, you want to help like stack the odds in your favor rather than against you. And things like just having some nice recipes, you know, remembering experiences when you've thought a vegetarian meal was awesome, as you put it, can just help make something less of a strain.
1: Like I said, your last book did something. So next time you come through on a novel, we'll see how I did. (laughs) (laughs) And you could say whether the
0: last time you had a burger, The last time I had a burger – well, it's funny. I I remember where it was because I passed it the other day. It was at a place called the – oh, crap. The Palm Grill at JFK Airport. And I was touring for Here I Am. And I just had a relationship end. And I was just depressed. I felt bad. And um, I don't know why. Something in me. I don't think it was in my brain. I think it was more like in my heart or stomach told me a burger will make you feel better. And it did it really did i mean burgers are comforting they not only taste good they're really for some reason they're really comforting
1: well you know you can have a burger every so often i don't have
0: lobster every day of course you can have a burger every so often yeah i mean the challenge is not again to become a an eating robot that wouldn't be any fun and it wouldn't be sustainable the challenge is to eat as much as possible in accordance with one's values and values are complicated. Like one value is working against climate change. Another value is breaking bread with friends or like trying foods in foreign countries. I had a really great experience the other day where after a reading um, at the signing, uh, a young couple came up to me and they put, pushed their book in front of me and opened to the title page and it was filled with their own handwriting. And I said, what's this? And they said, "Um, we decided tonight that we want to have a plan, because we're gonna get married in two months, and if we don't have a plan, we're gonna just keep doing what we've always done. And their plan was eat vegetarian unless at a friend's house and served meat, eat vegan two days a week, have no more than two kids, and drive no more than 1,000 miles in the year. I found the differences in their perspective from my own to be more inspiring than the overlaps. I was so impressed and touched Instead of having me sign the book, they had a line that just said witness and they wanted me to sign that. But what was really unsettling in the exchange was I realized that despite the fact that I'd written this book about the relationship between daily choices and climate change, despite having a a pretty hefty arsenal of statistics at my disposal and making like funny and inspiring posters for marches, I didn't have a plan. I just didn't have a plan. And I said a version of what you said, which is like – yeah, I could imagine doing less of this. Like, yeah, I'm gonna to try to fly less in 2020. But it's, it's just crap if you don't codify it, if you don't give it numbers, days of the week, and if you don't share it with other people, you know, and have witnesses who will hold you accountable. And it was after encountering their plan that I made a plan. I decided I wouldn't fly for leisure in 2020. Huge change in my life. I love to travel. I have kids. I love taking them places. I think there's an ethical good in traveling and having your perspective expanded, seeing all of the other ways that there are to be. And I hope to do as much travel as I can in the future, but this is not the year. This doesn't feel like the year to do it. So you're going to buy half as much meat, and I'm not going to fly on vacations. And those are our plans. (laughs) I bike only. Cage free
1: chickens and only cage free eggs. Mm. Period.
0: Mm. How's that felt? Like unno- it, invisible, or invisible that makes you proud, or not? well, Just-
1: invisible, and probably the food is tasting better, but mm. but basically invisible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't great. it hasn't made a difference? You know, it's a couple bucks extra. Eating more vegetables has been happening anyway. Part of it is that factory meat doesn't taste as good, right? Period, and it's getting worse. And now we're finding out that the FDA is not doing its job anyway, mm-hmm. which makes a difference. Do I want to get spare ribs again? Ever. Why are you mentioning spare ribs? There was a ruling the other day. The, uh, the Trump administration will, no, will now allow pork producers to um, inspect their own. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of pork crises coming up in the next couple of years. That's scary. That's both good and bad. I mean, it's bad for people who eat pork, but it also means maybe we should take it out of our diet. Mm. Jonathan Safran I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, about other things. One is that when I went to Amazon to look you up and make sure I had the right number of books, I saw a book listed called I Want You to Know We're Still Here, which is by your mother. It is. She just finished it. Yeah. What relation do you have to the book? I mean, both of your brothers are writers too. So
0: yeah, what relationship do I have to the book beyond the fact that it's the book that my mother wrote?
1: It's about your grandmother's and your mother's experience. Yeah, up. it's
0: really it's just a memoir of yeah. her journey from Eastern Europe to America and being a survivor herself and the the child of survivors. I find it very very moving.
1: Was it hard for you to think about your mom as a writer or has she always been writing?
0: I feel incredibly proud of her. I think it's a really hard thing to try to write a book and especially a memoir. I can't imagine ever doing that myself. And uh, I think it's wonderful. Uh, The the other question
1: is uh, about HBO. You walked away from being a showrunner on a project and we talked about this when Here I Am came out. And at that particular time, you kind of indicated, I'll never work in this town again. (laughs) And yet today you say that your relationship with them is good and what's
0: going on? Well, nothing's going on. I just have a perfectly nice... I liked everybody that I worked with over there. They're smart, good people. But I don't see myself leaving books. I feel really lucky to be a writer. I feel um, lucky to know other writers. People don't go into... Publishing for any reason other than because they love books. There's just there would be no other reason to go into it. The more exposure I have to other industries, whether because of my own experiments or just you know having friends and hearing about their experiences, the more grateful I am that this is what I get to do.
1: As here, I am becoming a film or TV series.
0: Uh, not that I know of, no.
1: Okay. Uh, have you thought about then? I guess screenplays or plays are not on the plate, or.
0: I could imagine trying to write a play one day. That, that is a really exciting idea, but it's a different talent. You know, it's writing a book, a novel, is to writing a play as playing basketball is to playing poker. They're very, very different skills. If I did it, I would do it because I thought it would be fun, not because I thought I would be good at it.
1: Jonathan Saffron for one final question, If uh, you start to work on your next novel then.
0: I have, but that's to say nothing at all. <laughs> I start lots and lots and lots of novels. You know that old Mark Twain quote about quitting smoking is the easiest thing in the world to do? I've done it 35 times. There's one thing that's easier, which is starting a novel.
1: How far are you in the latest iteration then?
0: In my mind or on the page? or? Well, in your mind, really. Be- in my mind, I'm done. Um, on the page, I haven't even started. <laughs> problem is everything that seems like a good idea isn't a good idea. You know, That's my experience with writing. Through the process of writing, I figure out what it is that I want to write. Anytime I've ever said, you know what would make a great novel, it hasn't even made a good paragraph. So I no longer have much – I have zero faith and very little interest in my good ideas. Your listeners can't see me making little air quotes. But the further I get into my life as a writer, the more excited I am by process.
1: So the next step is to – Begin to write and see where it goes.
0: That's exactly what the next step is, yeah. After the tour. After the tour. You know, I want to keep working. I want to devote more time to advocacy. When I wrote this book, I thought of it only as a book. And I've decided that I want to devote real time, like a couple days a week, to continuing to act, not only through words but through action, on – This problem, which is immediate and urgent and demands the most that we can give it.
1: Which is trying to stop further climate change. That's right. You've been listening to an interview with Jonathan Safran Farr, whose latest book is We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.